Hallelujah. Oh, praise you, Lord. We thank you as we consider our great salvation this morning. As we have sung, Lord, and see songs lift up those great themes that were true in your heart and your mind and plan before time began, unfolded through redemptive history as the eons marched forward according to your perfect plan and then sealed at the fullness of time in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the final work of our redemption, and now continue to reap fruits of the elect into the storehouses of glory until such time as they are full. We thank you, Lord, that you have done this by your sovereign almighty hand, that you have washed our sins away by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank you that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, dear Jesus. We thank you that you have set our hearts free from the burden of wrath and judgment that our sin deserved. We thank you that you have set us free unto worship and obedience of the faith among the nations. As we open your word, I pray that you would open our heart, speak directly to our soul, and bring there to the soil the nourishing life that would cause the seed to flourish and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold to the praise of your great name. Through your proclaimed word this morning, may we be exhorted and encouraged and emboldened to proclaim your truth. May you bring conviction of sin so that we might be sanctified like Jesus Christ from glory to glory, becoming more like Him. May we be thoroughly equipped for every good work as a result of your means or your use of the means of the service this morning, in order that your name might be resplendent through your people, echoing forth the timeless truth of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. Well, what a privilege it is to open the Scriptures today and to worship together the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, if you would, and let us continue in our Gospel series in Matthew's account. In chapter 27, we'll read verses 55 through chapter 28, verse 9 in a moment. While you're turning there, I'll give you a brief title and description. This morning, my message title is The Gospel and Worship the gospel in worship. We're going to explore the connection between a worshipful heart and the events of the gospel realized that we see demonstrated in characters that were there at ground zero when Christ invaded this earth and went through His ministry and now at the apex of His finished work of redemption. The aim of my message today is that as we realize what the lessons of Matthew 27 hold for us, that our ministry to Christ in worship would be enriched and inspired. Our ministry to Christ in worship would be enriched and inspired, along with a profound appreciation of the gospel. And in a more condensed phrase, I pray that we see today that the gospel and worship cannot be separated. They are, you could say, distinct but not separate. If the gospel is realized... The heart of the believer will explode. It will burst forth into worship. If there is no worship, if there is no heart, there's no drawing, there's no connection, there's no affections, there's no affinity, there's no relationship with the Lord, then we need the gospel and we should question whether we've realized it in the first place. The two go hand in hand. We see this in the gospel account of Matthew 27. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God 
with your Bible open and let us listen to these words coming to us from Matthew 27, again verses 55 into the next chapter, 28 verse 9. Here we have the Holy Word of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. 62. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by stealing the, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of, of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb for fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In the Old Covenant, If we turn back to passages that are typological, that is, symbolize, they foreshadow what will come in the gospel, we have passages like Numbers 21, verses 8 through 9. No need to turn there just yet, but let me remind you of a picture in the Old Covenant fulfilled in what we have just read. Numbers 21, 8 through 9 records a moment in Israel's history illuminating judgment and salvation. Quote, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
In John 3, 10 through 15, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisee who knew the law like the back of his hand in his head, but hadn't made the connection in his heart. He listens to the Word incarnate explain passages like this, and we find Jesus speaking with Nicodemus saying, quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended from, descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. In Matthew's account of the Gospel, the events of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, are listed for us, they are recorded for us. However, as we see, as it were, the fulfillment of the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole, that is, Jesus Christ raised upon the cross, made a curse for us. As we see these events unfolding, we also see something quite striking. There are, in fact, only two people, only two people as far as I can tell, who in Matthew's account personally experience the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as first-hand eyewitnesses to all three. That isn't to say there was only two eyewitnesses. It isn't to say they were the only ones that experienced these things. It is to say that there are only two persons in the text I read to you today that were there present at the very moment when Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected, at least recorded in Matthew's account. They become first-hand eyewitnesses, preeminent uh, witnesses to the testimony of what has taken place in these moments, and they are commissioned to go forth. Who are they? They are Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, or the wife of Cleopas. You might have noticed them reappearing in our text today, three times in fact. Associated first with Christ's death, secondly with His burial, thirdly with His resurrection. This is striking indeed. This is striking in many respects. Apologists, for one, have noted the unique ring of truth in the Gospels, partly because women at this place and time and culture were not considered necessarily the most credible witnesses at the time. So think of this. The point that the apologists would have us note, those who defend the Christian faith, is that if these stories of the gospel were mere fabrications, if the authors were just making them up, oh, this sounds like a good yarn to start a new religion, they chose interesting people. In fact, we know that they have not made them up simply because of the fact of the unique author's choice of the first and primary eyewitnesses to the most important events in all of history. So that's one important note to see. And there are many others, I'm sure, as well, reasons why this uh, account is striking. Perhaps even more compelling, and for the purposes of our message today, is this question. What uniquely motivated these women to follow Christ so closely and so faithfully such that they shared the privileged distinction of becoming preeminent eyewitnesses 
to the most incredible events in all of cosmic history. What compelled them to be there, to follow so closely in Christ's darkest hour, when all of the countryside is mocking this man who is demeaned and stripped bare and laid open in the most cruel, excruciating, humiliating death, and the whole countryside is against him, and the rabid, sinful, mocking public opinion is absolutely overwhelming, yet there is a handful of women who are there worshiping their Lord and Savior, attending His way, ministering to His needs, beholding Him crucified, beholding Him buried, beholding the empty tomb. What could it be that motivated them to be so faithful and so close to the Lord that they did not, like the other disciples, abandon Him in His darkest hour? If we can answer that question and we could apply it to our hearts, certainly our own faith would grow, would it not? So let us consider this question. First of all, let's do so under a heading. The heading is, two women followed Jesus so closely and faithfully they witnessed these three events. Number one, His cross. Number two, His burial. Number three, His resurrection. That will be the basic structure of our message today. Verses 62 through 66 will leave aside and cover more at length in a future sermon. But for the purposes of today, those three references to Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph will be our primary focus. First of all, consider that these women followed so closely and faithfully that they witnessed the cross. Let us ask this question first of all. Why were they there? Why were these women here in the first place? Why did they become disciples and followers of our Lord? Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, we get a little backstory of Mary Magdalene and others who were like her that were faithful followers, women of the day, who attended Christ in, Christ in His ministry. As we read a few of these notes and, and uh, references in Scripture, though they are brief, they are deep and profound indeed. In Luke 8.1, Soon afterward, He went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with Him. That would be, of course, the twelve disciples, the primary names that we associate with discipleship in Jesus' ministry. They weren't the only ones there, although, uh, uh, however, listen in verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So there's your first clue. These women, among them Mary Magdalene, we see in the same verse, had experienced something profound at the hand of Christ in His gospel ministry personal deliverance. They had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, sickness of the soul and no doubt sickness of the body. Mary called Magdalene, again verse 2, from whom, specifically it says of her, seven demons had gone out. And another example, verse 3, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, and listen to this phrase, who provided for them out of of their means. They provided for them, meaning the ministry organization of Jesus, though meager and though it no doubt ran on a shoe uh, string budget, nevertheless there were those benefactors and supporters 
who helped to provide for Christ, the Son of Man who had no place to lay his head through the course of his ministry. And among them we find these unlikely servants. Mary Magdalene, once possessed by seven demons, now follows closely and faithfully to Jesus Christ, closely and faithfully serving out of her own abundance and means and helping with other sisters in the faith to provide for Christ's ministry as he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God throughout the cities and villages of Judea. Profound indeed, a little bit of this backstory. How moving is your experience with Christ? How deeply did it affect you when you first met the Lord and felt deliverance from the greatest infirmity of all, namely your own sins? Has it moved you, believer, to set aside worldly pursuits, distractions, and idols, to lay them aside and to instead give of your means, the overflow of your own supply, in service of the kingdom of God? This is what happens, part of the change, part of the fruit that attends the way when those who have experienced deliverance of sins manifest it in worship before the Lord. They experience the gospel and it overflows in spontaneous expressions of worship. Sacrificial self-giving, explosive magnification of our glorious Savior, and faithful service and following of Him even during darkness and trial. This is who these women were. They were ones who were grateful for having been set free from the deepest and darkest bondages imaginable unto salvation of their souls, and therefore they followed the Lord. Every year when, I apologize for this mundane illustration, but every year uh, Joel and I sit down to do our taxes for the business, and there's a question on one of our forms, and it says, did you materially participate in Carleton Construction such and such business? And of course, the answer is yes, we materially participated. What does that mean? It means that we weren't just a distant partner, we weren't a silent partner, we didn't just give you know, a token or a distant, but we were actually there experiencing the work with our own hands, investing our own efforts and energy and, and, and capital, as it were, into our business enterprise. And if that question was given these women they could certainly answer yes. Did you materially participate in the ministry of Jesus Christ? Yes, we did. And that's what we see in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Ask the same question of Judas. If answered honestly, absolutely not. In fact, it couldn't be more totally opposed to the idea. Judas did not materially participate in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He materially benefited by stealing, by serving himself, from taking, by taking from the treasury for his own purposes. And thus we have two different responses to the opportunity that Jesus represents. Is he something that we just grab from to better ourselves? Or is he someone whom we worship and overflow and give to materially participating in his kingdom work? This kind of heart and attitude overflowed in faithful service. And it carried these women to give out of their abundance as there were needs in Jesus' ministry, no doubt. But it carried them further still. It carried them to faithfully follow and serve Christ all the way through His darkest hour when He was crucified on the cross, when His dead body wrapped in linen was laid and that tomb carved 
by Joseph of Arimathea, and the stone was rolled, still they sat there, looking for an opportunity to serve, with spices in hand to treat the body of their master, waiting for an opportunity, even in his death, to materially participate in his ministry. Oh, what faith. These women were believers. Wow, their testimony. They were preeminent eyewitnesses for a reason because they sought to lay their life down even for their dead Messiah. Powerful indeed. And yes, they were there. Consequently, they were able to appreciate that moment when the stone was rolled away. The angels appeared in the light as bright as lightning and announced, He's not here. He's risen from the dead. Put your spices back in the cabinet and go tell His disciples that he will meet all of you in Galilee. You all become eyewitnesses. What did they behold at this time? We've mentioned a few things. But these women, faithfully and consistently, without turning aside, running away, in fear, in anguish, in disillusionment, they faithfully beheld the gruesome agony of sacrifice as the darkest shadows of all history spread across the land. We've talked about this before. But the hour was fearful and frightening. It caused even those who mocked Jesus in triumphal victory. We've defeated this zealot, crucifying him on the cross. It caused the, the moments that happened that followed, caused the complete reversal in their emotions and their attitude. And they began to beat their breasts and cry, Woe is me! Cover their head in fear and run for the hills. And these were the events recorded in Matthew 27 that affected the people so. Now in the sixth hour there was darkness over the land, it says in verse 45, until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour our Savior cries from the cross, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, quoting Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you remember from our recent messages what continues to unfold. He yields up his spirit with a loud cry, and at the sound of the Son of Man's voice, behold, it says, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, shattering, ripping, tearing apart, rendering obsolete, and supplanting the old covenant worship order. Now there would be free access in the torn flesh of Jesus Christ to reconciliation with the Father. Next, the earth shook, the rocks split, and this mighty earthquake tore open the environment. And not just the stones, but the tombs also were opened. And as, it, as the gospel continues to record the events, many bodies of the saints in verse 52 who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. They went to the holy city and appeared to many. This, if this were not enough, the moving experience included this confession by the unlikely vessel of centurion and company those Gentiles keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw these events in this earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. And in another gospel, they cry out, truly this man was innocent, likely realizing that they will have to answer, they will have to answer judicially for pounding nails into this man's hand who obviously has more power than anyone they've ever met before, anything they could possibly imagine. And now they are staggering before the reality that they have just done something horrific and woe is them and woe is all who have led, brought him to this place in disrepute and mocked him on this cruel tree. What is going on here? The people did not know how to respond. Yet in all this chaos, in all this fear, in all this woe, in all of this darkness, trial, earthquake, 
and chaos. There were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary the son of Zebedee. As we see their position here and their attitude at Calvary, it is expounded in John 19. Turn there briefly if you would. What did they behold? They beheld all this awestruck, or all this uh, awesome chaos and darkness and, and, uh, uh, that we see where heaven and earth are shaking and reeling at the significance of the moment. But they also beheld deeply personal interaction where the dying breath of Jesus is spared for a few words of compassion for his most beloved followers. We see this in John 19, 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And as we see in this moment, because of the heart and the faithfulness of these who are so moved by the gospel to give their lives in service to Christ's work, whether it be uh, proclaiming his truth by miracles on the mountainside or dying the substitutionary death for their own atonement, these women got to experience Jesus' last breaths spared in this moment in overflowing compassion for those who were personally related to Him and whom He loved. And thus He breathed with His last instructions for the care of His own mother. These breaths, these words which were at an absolute premium for the dying Christ, they were experienced and appreciated by these women that gathered, His mother Mary, the other Marys that were there, and everyone who was there to behold His cross Wondering, asking God, what is the meaning? And they would soon find out. So that is our first point this morning. The women who followed so closely and faithfully, they witnessed his cross. Secondly, they witnessed his burial. They witnessed his cross in a way that no one else could, who was, whose heart had not been so moved as theirs. And secondly, they witnessed his burial in the same way. As we consider this next uh, aspect of Jesus' ministry, let us look again at verses 57 through 61 in Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And here's our note again in the text, verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Two women followed Jesus so closely and faithfully, they witnessed his cross and his burial. Why, why were they moved to do so? One an additional help in answering this question comes from a cross-reference. If we go back to Matthew 26, 
we find another woman who certainly would be a kindred spirit with these two Marys. Turn back to Matthew 26. Here is a kindred spirit to theirs. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in verse 6, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Again, materially participating in the work of Jesus Christ, pouring out of her substance in worship to her Messiah. Yet this action was deeper still. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why? Because they didn't understand what was going on. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Verse 10, Jesus sets them straight. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Another example of this singular devotion to the Lord, where the gospel and worship are seen in glorious harmony. This woman recognized in this action that this, her Messiah, would go to the grave for her, that He would go and be crucified and buried for her, that His death would be the most precious act, if you will, of His work in that it would purchase for her eternal life. And so in thankfulness for this immeasurable gift, every little thing that she owned seemed only to, uh, it seemed to serve her well only in presenting it as a willing sacrifice to the Lord, pouring out this expensive dowry, more than likely, the bride price, her wealth, her fortune to the Lord in worship and in service to Him. She realized the gospel. She overflowed in worship. May our ministry again to Christ in worship be enriched and inspired along with a profound appreciation of the gospel. As we realize how precious the blood of Jesus is, let the things of earth grow strangely dim to us in the light of His glory and grace so that our affections, energies, and ambitions are not wasted on that which perishes with the using, but instead those things can serve the kingdom and not serve us. Thus we see in His burial a kindred spirit in the two Marys with the woman who anointed Christ with her riches for burial. Here are two other and like-minded, like-minded sisters in the Lord. In Matthew 27, 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary there sitting opposite the tomb. The stone has covered it, but they refuse to leave. No doubt they're waiting for an opportunity to pour out from their substance in worship to their Messiah who lies behind that stone. If only they could get to Him. If only they could touch him, they must have felt as they sat there waiting, wondering if the stone could possibly be moved. Little did they know, in just a little bit of time, as they stuck around, they would see that stone gloriously rolled away, and they would be reunited with their Messiah. But not in his death, they would not know him as the dead Christ, but they would know him as the risen Lord. 
Praise the Lord. There were others present at his burial. These women weren't the only ones. We're focusing on them because they're highlighted three times in our text today, but there are others who are noted. When it was evening and they came, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. If you want to study more in your own time, Mark 15, 43, Luke 23, 50-51 tells us a little bit more of Joseph of Arimathea's backstory. Suffice it to say, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Who were they? They were a collection of rulers of the day, elders, priests, scribes, you know, Pharisees and the like, that created a sort of committee or congress, if you will, to make decisions for the nation, for the people of Israel. The Sanhedrin, to a man with one rare or two rare exceptions, had condemned Jesus to death, had sought for false witness and testimony, and were responsible for the trial that led him to this cruel act of execution. Yet there was an exception, a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, who dissented, who broke from the ranks, who was a lone voice who said, this is not right, and he risked life and limb to do the right thing. He went to Pilate, not knowing how much it would cost him personally, risked the abuse and the malignment and, and, and no doubt the uh, political animosity of all the rest of his cohorts in the Congress, the 69 or so others that would say, Joseph, what are you doing? Why are you not voting with the majority here? Why don't you just side, go and get on the right side of history and condemn this man? Joseph of Arimathea refused to do so, put his own neck on the line, and used his riches in service of his Messiah and risked his reputation to take a cue from these women and materially participate even in the burial of Jesus Christ. And so this man of wealthy means carved out carefully and painstakingly with his wealth a place suitable for the burial of a very important, austere, noble man. And it was all he had, but it was what he could offer as a suitable place, even for those three days when our Lord Jesus Christ's body lay in the grave. And Joseph, lovingly at the risk of his own life, took the body and wrapped it with a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone over the entrance. There's another man who helped him in this cause. It was Nicodemus. You find the account in other Gospels, if you cross-reference, you'll find that Nicodemus and Joseph teamed up to accomplish this task in Matthew, or, uh, in, that we see here referenced in Matthew. This is significant. Why? Because it tells us that there is an exception to the Matthew 19.69 norm. What is that norm? That norm is that it is all nigh impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier, in fact, Christ says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But Joseph and Nicodemus and even these women who, uh, who historians suppose were probably uh, women of, of decent means and wealth, they are exceptions and they prove that nothing is impossible with God. Rich people and poor people alike worship the Lord and laid down their lives for the gospel. Praise his holy name. We see this in Zacchaeus as well. Sells his fortune, ill-gotten gain, or uh, gives it away, his ill-gotten gain, and to the tune of four times over an in interest, and joyfully gives himself to the service of his master. So these are those who faithfully followed Jesus so closely that they did so at great personal cost, and even when it was extremely unpopular. 
Finally, in this burial moment, we see prophecy fulfilled. We won't spend a ton of time here, but if you go back to Isaiah 53, verse 9, the significance of the moment is heightened when we see that these very events and circumstances were prophesied of old. This Jesus, who was humble, who had no place to lay his head, was found among the outcasts and was poverty-stricken for all real practical purposes, there would nevertheless be an aspect of his ministry which would anticipate his glorification. That is to say that he wouldn't be poor forever. It says, by oppression and judgment, Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Who was that rich man? Joseph of Arimathea. R.C. Sproul, one of my mentors in the faith, I so appreciate his ministry and influence. He is jealous to note, he, he just loves to point out that the exaltation of Jesus Christ didn't begin at his resurrection, but actually began in this moment. The glorification of Jesus began at his burial because now the great humiliation that he suffered on the cross began to turn around and he is given a rich man's burial and his body is treated as something of worth. He is not despised and rejected by Nicodemus and Joseph, but instead he is treasured and he is honored and revered and thus foreshadowing the great exaltation of our Lord and Savior, who in his pre-incarnate glory made himself of no account and stepped into history, humiliated himself in taking on the flesh and the form of a servant, going lower still, suffering a criminal's death on our behalf, but then being exalted to the right hand of the Father, receiving from the Ancient of Days his kingdom, ruling and reigning forever and ever in glorious resplendence as we see him pictured in Revelation. This turn toward glory began at his burial, and so we see this in the text. Final point this morning. Two women followed Jesus so closely and faithfully they witnessed his cross, his burial, and finally his resurrection. Turning to our next chapter, we read this. Now after Sabbath, verse 1, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, who do we find? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They just can't keep themselves away from the Lord, alive or dead. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now notice, in this event, there are two different kinds of people. There are the unbelieving pagan guards, and, they are the, and there are the faithful women disciples, the two Marys. The men, fully armed, dressed to the teeth, commissioned by Rome with the authority of the empire behind them, who had conquered the known world, who could whistle and have a cadre, uh, you know, uh, legions of soldiers at their hand call for reinforcements to guard themselves against any eventuality. When this glorious revelation happened in their face, they fell down as though dead. But two women who were not respected culturally in their day, 
Two of the outcasts, the unlikely, certainly to be primary and preeminent eyewitness accounts of the most significant events in cosmic history, receive this revelation. And though they fear, their fears are quickly calmed. And as they listen, they behold that something has happened. Their Savior has risen. And they receive in this terrifying, triumphant announcement the news that He has risen from the dead. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. I imagine those soldiers were still quaking, you know, sent into some kind of psychological paralysis, at least on the ground, unable to move. They certainly didn't stop the woman, and they certainly were disabled and disarmed from affecting this situation at all. Yet, these two women, these two Marys, as it were, followed the angel inside that tomb. And as it's glowing with the light of glorious revelation, they see the place where Jesus had once laid. There are his grave clothes, but the man has risen. He has risen from the dead. How did he get out of that tomb? He was raised, not like he was sown, but his glorious resurrection body could pass through that tomb. His glorious resurrection body would soon ascend in 40 days to the Father. His glorious resurrection body prefigures our own resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, as the first fruits of our glorious future. And these women are first to witness evidence of this very act as they see these angels, these celestial beings, with all the power of heaven coming down like lightning appearing before them as white as snow, glowing and proclaiming that He is risen indeed. Secondly, at His resurrection, the women received eyewitness commission. They were immediately given instructions. Verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come see the place where He lay. Verse 7, the angels tell them, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. The very first two soldiers received marching orders for the great commission. Go tell all your comrades that he has risen from the dead. Go tell all the disciples the glorious news. Those disciples that abandoned Christ, we see in Matthew 26, 56, but all this had to take place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Where were they? They had left Jesus. They had fled. Yet two women named Mary remained. And they, in spite of all the fearful circumstances, all the terrifying chaos, all the overwhelming glory, stuck around. They did so because of the deep, profound faith they had in their Savior, who was crucified, buried, and now risen from the dead. And because they stuck around, and consequently, they received the first eyewitness commission, as it were, take what you have seen and spread the word to all. Go quickly and tell the disciples, Behold, he is risen. See, I have told you, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And finally, this morning, let us consider verse 9 as we go back over the main 
point of this message, the gospel and worship are always together. The one is never realized without the expression of the other, gospel and worship. Matthew 28, 9 proves as much, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And what was their spontaneous response? What was their overflowing sense? What was their impulsive action that they took? That is Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph. They ran to him. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his feet, the feet that were anointed by others who recognized that he was the Messiah. The feet that had trod the dusty soil of Judea, preaching and proclaiming without so much as two cents to rub together the Son of Man with no place to lay his head, a message of a glorious kingdom. The feet that were shod with the gospel and had the power to shod us with the gospel to go forth. The feet that were pierced by the nail that they had just seen driven days before into his hands, his limbs, his feet. These feet they hugged and grabbed and they worshipped him. An act of unfettered devotion, overflowing worship adoration, and praise. As we behold Jesus Christ in His Word, crucified, buried, and raised, may it quicken our ministry to Him in worship. May, be, may it be enriched and inspired along with these women and those who have gone before the saints of old. And let it be attended with a profound appreciation of the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us without testimony. We thank you that these eyewitnesses, very words, very experiences, the very events that they saw with their eyes and experienced with their senses are here recorded for us, and this word is your word. We thank you that we, through this means, Lord, can appreciate the gospel when your spirit quickens our heart. As you do so, may it overflow in worship, worship that gives of self and honors your name, confesses you at Lord and wor- as Lord and worships at your feet. Lord, for those who may fellowship among us who have not had that experience of life-transforming power when they behold their Savior crucified and raised, I pray that you would draw them unto salvation and bring their feet from the miry clay of sin and set, it on a cor- set them on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, unto the praise of your great name that they might join us, as it were, in materially participating in the growth of the kingdom of God. What a glorious privilege it is. Help us to never grow tired of announcing you are risen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.